Judges chapter eight. So every life has its wins and its losses. And it's been said by some, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. I'm not sure that's true. Now, I understand the sentiment. I know where that's coming from. I I get it. It's not how you start. It's it's how you finish. Well, that's because we live on a chronological timeline. We have a start, and then we have, at some point, what we would consider an end, at least to this life. Those of us who walk with Jesus know it's not the end. It's just, you know, the beginning of real life. But but still, there's a, a start and a finish. And so in that chronological way of thinking, we see that we've got to be getting better along the way. We've got to be on an upswing if we are to please the Lord. And you know what? That, that kind of ignores grace. If I'm, what if I'm worse? What if I happen to dip the day of the rapture? What if that happens to be the worst day of my week? Does that then disqualify me from the grace of God by faith in Christ Jesus, my Lord? Now, when I was a kid, I might have said, yeah, well, no, you have to be on the upswing. You have to at least be pursuing in the direction of Jesus. What if I'm not on that particular day? Is God so arbitrary as to rip salvation from me because I'm having a bad day? Because maybe I'm in the midst of messing some things up. The beautiful thing about Jesus is he always looks at the heart. We look at the outward appearance. We will make assumption about ourselves and about others that, wow, this person's in a good place or this person's in a bad place, but we don't know the heart. And Jesus does. And I'm so thankful he's the one who knows the heart and I don't have to be that judge of myself or of other people. But God God doesn't look in terms of a chronology or chronological timeline. He sees it all at once. He is, I am. Whereas I have memories of my past, God sees that as having happened right while my present is having happened, which is how being a a believer in Jesus, which is how the cross actually covered me back then, but also covers me now. It's how the cross 2,000 years ago actually covered people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who lived centuries, if not millennia, before the cross. God sees the whole thing, sees the big picture. Now, when it comes to, and Jake asked me a great question earlier today. He said, well, how do you answer then that, that whole issue? Well, so you're, I mean, is it by grace that you're saved? Or, or, or what about works and what about, aren't we trying to be sanctified and, and to be made holy? And I'm messing up Jake's question, but that's okay. He's not back in here yet. It was some kind of lame question like that. But anyway, here's how I look at it. That on the one hand, grace saves us, period. On the other hand, as a follower of Jesus, absolutely, I am practicing righteousness. I am not righteous all the time in every action and every behavior and everything that I do, but I am practicing. I do want to be a better believer next year than I am this year. I do wanna grow in my faith, to be sanctified in my salvation. My desire is that my life's chronology and trajectory does continue to go upward. But that's not what saves me. It is the grace of God that saves me. So it's really two facets to this. Salvation is in Jesus. Sanctification is, that's the walk. And that is by his spirit over the lifetime And whether I'm on the upswing or the downswing at the moment of my calling home, if I am truly saved by grace, then I am saved by grace. Now, Paul wrote, 
1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. I mean, you can shipwreck your faith. You can mess it up big time. You can make it hard for yourself to believe because of choices you've made, choices I've made. So Paul says, no, no, our desire, our calling is to fight that fight, to surge forward. He said in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, again, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses like Jackie's confession tonight. You make that confession and Paul says from that point forward, fight on, man, keep fighting. And of course, you know, at the very end of his life, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, Paul said, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul, who assumed through most of his writings, and you can read into it very easily, that Paul assumed he was going to be caught up. He would be in the rapture of the church. Now, he will be. He'll be among the dead in Christ who rise first. But there is an easy assumption to see in his other writings that he figured he was going to be caught up in his lifetime. That's how he lived his life. To be caught up from this earth straight up to be with Jesus. And yet now, in this moment, writing 2 Timothy, Paul's on death row and he knows it. It may be hours, days, from when he wrote this letter that Paul would be executed in Rome. So Paul, in that moment, I would say, had the right to look back and say, fight fought, course finished. I've done it. And now I'm ready to go home, Lord. But unless you're sitting on death row in a Roman cell, knowing that you have hours or days to live, you don't say, I have fought the good fight. You say, I fight the good fight. So we're still in the fight. We're still pressing on and there will be good days and there will be bad days and there will be wins and there will be losses. And if you look at the chronology, the trajectory of the life of Gideon, you might assume that a man who began in fear became quite faithful and then train wrecked and went to hell. If it was based on Gideon. Hebrew writer calls out Gideon as a picture, an example of faith. So with that in mind, we keep going on. This, this battle against Midian, against the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people of the east, it rages on. We pick up right where we left off in verse four of Judges chapter eight. Then Gideon and the 300 men who were with him came to the Jordan and crossed over, weary yet pursuing, and I like that. Weary yet pursuing. I highlighted that in my Bible. You ever feel that way? I am weary but I'm in the pursuit of holiness. I am weary, but I'm pursuing the lost in the name of Jesus. I am weary, but I am pursuing the truth. I'm weary, but I am pursuing heaven. I am pursuing the kingdom. My favorite D.L. Moody quote I've, I've shared with you many times over the years, I'm weary in the work, he said, but I am not weary of the work. So it's okay to be weary. It's okay to be worn out. Weary, yet pursuing. We all get weary. We all wear thin from time to time. But of course, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 12, 10, when I'm weak, then I am strong. So if you're weary 
in the work, that's fine. Just don't be weary of the work. Gideon is a picture here now of a weak man. And yet he's made strong for the battle at hand. He is weary in the fight. He's already now not only blown the trumpets, lit the torches, broken the pitchers, shocked all the Midianites. Now, not only has he faced off with the men of Ephraim who are upset because he didn't invite them into the battle and have to cool their jets a bit and deal with them emotionally, now he's on the run pursuing the Midianites who are fleeing him. Pick it up in verse five. And he said to the men of Sukkot, Please give loaves of bread to the people who are following me, for they are weary, and I am pursuing Zabach and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. The leaders of Sukkot said, Are the hands of Zabach and Zalmunna already in your hands? And that th- th- we should give bread to your army? <laughs> you want us to choose a side now? We haven't seen who's won. And in verse seven, Gideon said, all right, when the Lord has given Zabach and Salmuna into my hand, then I will thrash your bodies with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. I'm coming back for you guys, he says. He went up from there to Penuel and he spoke similarly to them. In other words, asking for bread, asking for some kind of provision. And the men of Penuel answered him just as the men of Sukkot had answered him. So he also spoke to the men of Penuel, saying, when I return, I will tear down this tower. Okay, so Sukkot and Penuel, cities on the east side of the Jordan River. He has now crossed the Jordan with his men, probably at a very shallow place. He's crossed over to the other side. And the first, time, first city he comes to there is Sukkot. First time that we see Sukkot is Jacob's last stop before re-entering the promised land. Now, if you followed through our Genesis teaching, you know Jacob had left the promised land. He met his wives and his many children were born and then he begins to come back with his gaggle across back into the promised land. And the last stop prior to coming back into the land, technically crossing the Jordan, is Sukkot. Genesis 33, 17, Jacob journeyed to Sukkot and built for himself a house or a dwelling and made booths For his livestock, therefore, the place is named Sukkot. You Bible students know Sukkot means booth. The feast of Sukkot, the seventh feast of the seven feasts of Israel, the last of the fall feasts, that wonderful feast of Sukkot, that big massive camp out throughout the land of Israel that is celebrated even to this day every year in Israel. And and it's a promise. It's a prophetic, like all the feasts of Israel, it's a prophetic picture of the coming kingdom of Sukkot in the kingdom. Zechariah 14, 16, it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went up against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king and the Lord of hosts and to celebrate the feast of Sukkot, booths. Why will we celebrate that in the kingdom? Well, Sukkot is a reminder, both now and then, that God sees us through these temporary dwellings onto the eternal dwelling. It's a reminder also that Jesus tabernacled among us. He dwelt, he pitched his tent, his sukkah, if you will, among us. And so we'll have that celebration out ahead of us. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 says, we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. I'm pausing and mentioning this about Sukkot and about the promise to come and the eternal nature of our ultimate dwelling with God because there are many people who cannot see any further than right now. They can only see as far as today and they have no vision for victory just like the leaders of Sukkot. We don't know who's gonna win. Well, if word had gotten to them, and we don't know if it had or not, but if word had gotten to them that God said Gideon would win, then they could have known that the battle was already won, though the pursuit was going on. We don't know who's gonna win. They had no vision for the victory. Penuel is a second stop when you're leaving the promised land, but Jacob actually stopped there before he came to Sukkot. That's an incredibly significant place. You may recall that is the place of Jacob's wrestling match with God. When he spent the night wrestling with God, a Christophany. So I believe another one of those Older Testament appearances of Jesus as, as the wrestling match went through the night. Genesis 32 verse 30 says Jacob named the place Peniel or Penuel is what it became as he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. And the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel and he was limping on his thigh. Why? Because in the wrestling match, as Jacob was prevailing, God just touched his thigh and he had a limp the rest of his life. And it happened at Penuel. So both of these places are important. Jacob places in Jewish history, but Sukkot turns them away. We don't know who the victor's gonna be, so we need to, we need to hold it close to the vest. And then, then Penuel, we don't know who the victor's gonna be, so they give no help. Neither one of these cities, or at least the leaders of these cities, remember anything of God's faithfulness, so they're just gonna wait it out. We'll wait it out. We'll see who wins. Do you know anybody like that? I call them the wait and seers. The wait and seers, and you know what? It is really hard to see very far when you're sitting on the fence, when you're not making a commitment to anything one way or another. There is no vision on the fence. Proverbs 29, 18 tells us, and where there is no vision, the people perish, or the people run wild, or they're uncontrolled. Where there's no vision, you have no direction. And if you're sitting on the fence, by nature, you have no vision for victory. That's what I love about Bible prophecy because Bible prophecy is vision that keeps us going. It's vision out ahead of us that keeps us seeing. It's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. He goes on to say, do not worry about tomorrow. Today will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. It's one of my favorite phrases Today's trouble is enough for today. I don't have to worry about tomorrow's trouble because you know what? I don't have vision for tomorrow's failures. I have vision for the kingdom that is victory. I have vision for what's out ahead. We have, by the word of God, vision for ultimate victory. We know the win is in hand. But there are those who, you know, they're stuck in the now, they're stuck in today, and all they can see of tomorrow is just you know, cloudiness and, and maybe hope, maybe not. I'm just gonna wait and see. The wait and seers. The best way 
my opinion, to not be troubled today in wins or in losses. And by the way, wins can trouble you just like losses can trouble you. But the best way to deal with it is keep looking forward to the kingdom come. Isn't it interesting that that's how Jesus began and ended his public ministry? It began in Mark chapter one, verse 14, saying the time is fulfilled, verse 15, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom is at hand, he said. Look to the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom. And then at the end of his ministry, we'll read Matthew 24. And he's talking again, be ready, be ready. Live for the kingdom come. And by the way, this explains something of Gideon's exasperation with the so-called leaders. I'll call them the politicians of Sukkot and Penuel. Those guys sitting on the fence with no vision of faith today can expect a good thrashing tomorrow. Those in church circles, and I say in church circles because they may or may not actually be in the church. I don't know. Those maybe who will show up really don't have faith in Jesus. And really, they're kind of, I'm gonna wait and see. What do you think about the second coming? What do you think about the rapture? What do you think about revelation? Eh, I'm just gonna wait and see. There are gonna be awful, an awful lot of people with no vision for the future who are gonna experience a good thrashing. Hebrews 10, 26 says, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Well, Rick, are are, are you saying that if someone doesn't believe in the rapture of the church and your particular end times theology, your eschatology, that they're gonna go into the tribulation? Not necessarily. (laughs) I'm just gonna let that sit right there. No, I'm not saying that because where we started was we started with grace. But there are those who will put off making a decision for Jesus under the statement, I'll wait and see if it's true. And they will go into the tribulation and they will experience a serious thrashing. And they may yet be saved by the grace of God at that time, but it will be a painful way to get saved. Verse 10. Now, Zabach and Salmuna were in Karkor and their armies with them, about 15,000 men, all who were left of the entire army of the sons of the east for the fallen were 120,000 swordsmen. How many people are chasing these guys down? 300, 300 And at this point, 120,000 are already down and yet there are still 15,000 and they are fleeing for their lives from this little band of 300. It's an amazing story. By the way, you might wanna note this. Zabach, his name literally means deprived of protection. Salmuna's name means to the slaughter. I don't think I'd follow either one of these guys. Deprived of of protection and to the slaughter, whoever named them, I don't know. But again, it's just 300 chasing down 15,000. It won't work unless it's supernatural. Verse 11, Gideon went up by the way of those who lived in tents on the east of Nobah and Yodvahah and attacked the camp where the camp was unsuspecting, or literally the word is secure. They felt like they had secured the camp and here comes Gideon and his men and they're attacking. 
It says in verse 12, when Zabach and Zalmunna fled, he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zabach and Zalmunna, and routed the whole army. Now, Gideon's gonna deal with these two kings, as we'll see in just a minute here. But first, he got issues with Sukkot and Penuel. He's gonna do what he said he was gonna do. These cities, again, east of the Jordan, and let me be clear about Sukkot and Penuel, these are in the territory of Gad. These are Jewish cities, or Hebrew cities at the time. Israelite cities. This really concerned Moses. Years ago, this, this, this concerned, it worried Moses. Numbers chapter 32, verse six says, Moses said to the sons of Gad and to the sons of Reuben, shall your brothers go to war while you yourselves sit here? Remember that? So Reuben, the half-tribe of Manasseh and Gad all wanted to stay to the east. And Moses' concern was, if you stay here, you're gonna demoralize your brothers who are going to fight. They're gonna fight without you. But there's something even prophetic in this. If you're over here and we have a problem in the land, are you gonna help? And Sukkot and Penuel have already shown that they would not. They wouldn't even give their brothers bread. No wonder Gideon is incensed. And no wonder Gideon, the guardian of the unruly here, a judge of Israel, is positioned to punish them for their behavior. And yes, I believe Gideon is right in doing so. I will thrash your bodies with thorns of the wilderness and with briars, verse seven. I will tear down this tower, verse nine. You might say, well, wait a minute. What about a gentle answer turns away wrath? Where's the spirit-filled Gideon we saw on Sunday? Where's the gentleman? Well, the whole verse of Proverbs 15, verse one, actually says a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And it was a harsh word from Sukkot, from Penuel, that stirred up the ire, the anger of Gideon. And again, I think it's a righteous anger. And you understand there's a, a vast difference. Gideon going from a gentle answer on the one hand to a harsh word on the other. There is a vast difference between the soldiers of Ephraim, <laughs> the soldiers of Ephraim on the one hand and the, the leaders of Sukkot and Penuel on the other. Now we're gonna let our little friend run around. So focus up here, stay with me. He is cute. I know a lot cuter than I am. That's not my fault. If you're not here for cute, you're here for the word of God. So again, you gotta see the difference. The soldiers of Ephraim that got a gentle answer, hey, guess what? They were in the fight. They were upset that they hadn't been brought into the fight earlier, but at least they were in the fight. The leaders of Sukkot and Penuel, who angered Gideon, were on the fence. Big difference from the fight to the fence. It's not, listen to me, it's not in your wins or in your losses the question is, are you in the fight? Are you in the fight? You may live a lifetime of losses, but you're in the fight. Which is a whole lot better than sitting on the fence. Fence sitters always arouse divine anger. Jesus says in Revelation 3.15, I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. Man, 
pick a side of the fence. He says, because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Verse 13. Verse 13. Then Gideon, the son of Yoash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Heres. And he captured a youth from Sukkot and questioned him. And the youth wrote down for him the princes of Sukkot and its elders, 77 men. Verse 15. He came to the men of Sukkot and he said, Behold, Zabach and Zalmunna, concerning whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zabach and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your men who are weary? He says, Here they are. Here's the win that you were so uncertain about. And he took the elders of the city, verse 16, and he took them with thorns of the wilderness and briars and disciplined the men of Sukkot with them. And I'm gonna actually, Jackie, do you think you could take him out? Just, I love kids. I just wanna, it's my problem. Whoop, down we go. Oh. <laughs> Wins and losses. Thank you, Jackie. I have no idea where I am. Fence sitters, fence sitters arouse divine anger. Children do not. Gideon comes back now and he's got the two kings and he has sh he's now showing the men of Sukkot, look, <laughs> look who won. And he takes them out and it's amazing language. He disciplined the men of Sukkot, verse 16, with them. The word disciplined, you're gonna love this. Jot this down, write it down. Hebrew word, you gotta know this one. The word disciplined is Yoda. I'm not kidding. It's Yoda. Discipline you, I can. <laughs> it means literally a lesson learned by experience. I'm gonna give you a lesson you're not gonna forget. And he does so with briars and thorns. He thrashes these guys. They get a whipping. Now an argument remains here. There are those who read this passage and they say, well, wait. I think this is human retribution. I think Gideon's way out of line. So that's the question. Is it divine punishment or is it human retribution? The Bible doesn't tell us. Doesn't give us any more specific uh, evidence or, or, or even teaching on whether God approved or, or disapproved except that we go back and realize Gideon is walking by the Spirit. Gideon was called up as a leader of Israel and what the men of Sukkot did was turn their backs on their brothers and God doesn't countenance that. In fact, God has a real issue with that. Look at verse 17, says he tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Some would say, oh, Gideon, what are you doing? Others would say, yeah. Yeah, it needed to be done. These guys needed a clearing out. If it seems unusually harsh, at least factor this in. These were non-fighters. These were anti-uniters. These were those who were causing division in Israel. How does God feel about division? I think it's clear. 
Proverbs 6, 16, there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and number seven, what he truly hates above all else is one who spreads strife among brothers, which is exactly what the minister Colt and Penuel had done. Do they deserve this punishment? Absolutely they did. And so do I. So do I. But by the grace of God, I have salvation. But this is something to understand about the Lord. He does not countenance strife. You can spread strife in a fellowship, among brothers, sisters, in an army. You can spread strife by simply refusing to fight alongside your brothers and sisters. You fight. I'm not interested. Kyle and Delich write that the inhabitants of these cities had not only acted treacherously to Israel as far as they could from the most selfish interests in a holy conflict for the glory of the Lord and the freedom of his people, but in their contemptuous treatment of Gideon and his host, they poured contempt upon the Lord. Having been called by the Lord to be the deliverer and judge of Israel, it was Gideon's duty to punish the faithless cities. And so there it is. And I'll leave you to your understanding with that situation. Verse 18. And then he said to Zebach and Salmuna, what kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? And they said, they were like you, each one resembling the son of a king. And he, that is Gideon, said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if only you had let them live, I would not kill you. He's speaking to the kings of Midian. Now, have we heard this story about Gideon's brothers being murdered by the Midianites? No. This is the first time we've heard. In fact, we know that Gideon had brothers because he said earlier on, I am the youngest in my father's house. So we know he, he must have had brothers. Now we find out that apparently his own brothers, his flesh and blood, had been murdered by Midianites. Which tells us Gideon had some skin in the game. He had a reason to be drawn into this. And now what Gideon does, as both he, he's both judge of Israel and he becomes the Goel, the blood avenger, which by Torah law, would be his right. Now I remind you from Sunday, in Jesus, we're in a different place. In Jesus, we are not blood avengers. In Jesus, we no longer counterpunch, right? Jesus says, you've heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's Torah law. Jesus says, I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, yet turn to him the other also. But at this time, under Torah and with the judge Gideon, he becomes the blood avenger as he takes the lives now of Zabach, or what's his name? Yeah, Zabach and Zalmuna. Verse 20. So he said to Jeter, or Jeter, his firstborn, rise, kill them. But the youth did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a youth. Why would Gideon do that? Is he trying to teach his son, ah, hey, let's go out and do a little hunting. Let's kill some kings. No. No, he calls on his son to do that because it's a humiliating way for a warrior to die, to be killed by a kid. 
And you even see this in their response, verse 21. Zabach and Zalmunna said, rise up yourself and fall on us. For as the man, so is his strength. So now they're, now they're actually taunting. It's not, not a good idea if you happen to be captured in war to taunt the person who can decide if you're gonna live or die. But they're taunting Gideon. And it says that Gideon arose and killed Zabach and Zalmunna and took the crescent ornaments which were on their camel's necks. The word crescent is only used two times in the Hebrew scriptures, right here. And it's used in Isaiah 3.18, which says, in that day, the Lord will take away the beauty of their anklets, their headbands, and their crescent ornaments. The word crescent is saharonim. And it literally, only used here and in Isaiah 3.18. And it's the crescent moon. It's very interesting to note this. It's the crescent moon. This was an amulet of paganism, my friends. The symbol of Islam today was an amulet of Midianite paganism to the moon god. Allah was the name of the moon god of Muhammad's tribe. Now, it's, it's funny that, not funny, it's, it's tragic, but uh, Muslims today try to deny that. No, no, that's not, he's, he's, he's always been God. No, he's always been the moon god. And, and this tracks back so much further. It's not, Islam popped up under, uh, under Muhammad, what, about 620? That's 620 years or so after Christ. And, and at first, Muhammad tried to rope in Christians and rope in Jews and calling them people of the book. And he tried to be kind to them and say, hey, I, I just have a better, further, newer revelation than, than you have. And, and Christians and Jews both said, bye-bye, <laughs> Felicia. And, and that was it for Muhammad. Suddenly he becomes angry and, and now they're infidels. But it wasn't in 620 that this idea of the crescent moon god arose. This is as ancient as Midianite paganism. It's rooted deep in pagan Baal worship. 1 John chapter 5, verse 20 says, we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. This is true God and eternal life. And John ends this, this little letter by saying, 1 John 5, 21, little children, guard yourselves against idols. And idols are anything that takes our eyes off of the Lord, takes our eyes off of Jesus. And even in this win, Gideon has won the war. And what happens? Almost immediately, his eyes are off the true prize. And they're onto these shiny, gleaming, pagan ornamentation. And it becomes a snare for Gideon and for all Israel. Verse 22 the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, both you and your son, and also your son's son, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. So they're already asking for a king. They've already forgotten they have a king and his name is Yahweh. But in this, they say, be our king. Gideon, I, I like this. He said, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. Yahweh shall rule over you. Good answer. That's the right response. But then... As Les is apt to say, watch where his feet go. Watch where Gideon's feet go. Verse 20, where are we? Four, thank you. Yet Gideon said to them, I, I would request of you, 
that each of you give me an earring from his spoil. For they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. The Midianites were also called Ishmaelites uh, because that was a generic term for, for the, the peoples. So they had these earrings, which was very much a, a pagan thing at the time. If you're wearing earrings right now, you're not pagan, it's okay. Verse 25, they said, we will surely give them. And so they spread out a garment and every one of them threw an earring there from his spoil. The weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels. That would be 43 pounds. So the earrings alone were $1.2 million worth of gold by today's standard. Actually, by Tuesday's standard. I don't know if you've changed. So put that down beside the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple robes which were on the kings of Midian, besides the neckbands that were on their camels' necks. Verse 27, Gideon made it into an ephod and placed it in his city, Ophrah, and all Israel played the harlot with it there so that it became a snare to Gideon and his household. An ephod, you might remember, is like a religious poncho. Okay, there was an ephod for the high priest of Israel that, that he wore over the robe and on top of the ephod was, was the breast piece that had the stones of the tribes of Israel and on each shoulder of the ephod were the black onyx stones that had six tribes written on one side and six tribes written on the other side. And so this, this ephod was a very priestly looking thing. What is Gideon doing? And taking this gold and taking these purple robes and, and developing, making this, this holy looking ephod. Gideon wasn't a Levite. So he was not of the priestly tribe. He's from Manasseh. And the Bible declares this to be a snare. You know this, whenever a thing, in this case the ephod, or even a place, Ophrah, when it objectifies our faith, it guts the relationship that we are called to and it steals the glory that is due the Lord. Those two things. Idols gut relationship because now you're looking at the thing rather than the Lord. And idols Steal the glory because now you're glorifying the thing instead of the Lord who deserves all the glory and honor and praise. He said in Isaiah 42 verse eight, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another nor my praise to graven images. And so here's Gideon who started off fearful, shaking, can't blame him meets the angel of the Lord, the Malach Yahweh, has interaction, personal interaction with him, discussion back and forth, trusts in him, follows him, believes his word, takes him at his word, and now he goes back to, to Orpha, and there where he met the angel of the Lord, in fact, it's likely on the very stone where he met the angel of the Lord, he sets up this golden ephod, and it becomes idol worship in Gideon's town. Gideon has the dubious distinction of being the first judge of Israel to foster idolatry. He's supposed to deliver from this kind of thing. And by the way, the fact that this idolatry is taking place here at, at Ophrah, it, it also drew people away from Shiloh and the tabernacle. And the one place that God said, I want you to come and worship my name. But now they're worshiping over here. Verse 28. 
So Midian was subdued before the sons of Israel, and they did not lift up their heads anymore. Well, yeah, if you lose 135,000 people in battle, I think you'd probably cool your jets. And the land was undisturbed for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Verse 29, then Yerubbaal, the son of Yoash, went and lived in his own house. Remember, that's Gideon's other name, his nickname. Now, Gideon, verse 30, had 70 sons who were his direct descendants, for he had many wives. The Bible does not ever approve. It just states things as fact. And so polygamy is not approved in scripture, but it happened. And so the Lord doesn't deny it and tells us about it. Gideon had many wives. And verse 31, as if his many wives weren't enough, his concubine who was in Shechem also bore him a son. So he had someone on the side. I don't know why you would have to have someone on the side when you already have many wives. I, just, I, don't, I don't get the thinking. I've told you all before, I, it's enough for me just to keep up with one. That's a me problem. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a ripe old age or good old gray hair and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Ophrah of the Aviezrites. Verse 33, it came about as soon as Gideon was dead that the sons of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal Barit their God. Thus the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hands of all the enemies, all their enemies on every side, nor did they show kindness to the household of Yerubbaal, that is Gideon, in accord with all the good that he had done to Israel. Verse 34 names Yahweh, Elohim, the Lord, their God, just after naming the pagan God in verse 33, which is Baal Barit. Does Barit sound familiar, Hebrew students? It's the word for covenant, this is Baal of the covenant. What covenant are we even talking about here? Baal of the covenant. And I'm making an assumption here, and I may be right, I may be wrong. So don't mark this down as, as, as like fact. My assumption is that Baal Barit was their syncretism of Yahweh and Baal. Mixing the two together. Oh, oh yeah, no, we believe in God, the God of the covenant. He's Baal of the covenant. And it's the same mentality when people say Allah and Yahweh are the same God. No, they're not. Any more than Baal is the same God. Baal Barit, Baal, whatever you call Baal, you can call him whatever you want. And he's still not God. And so they're following here, they're setting up, they're playing the harlot with Baal Barit, they're playing the harlot with the golden ephod that, that he had made, and, and things are a mess. This is not a good end. For a man who's called out as faithful in the book of Hebrews. Wins and losses. Wins and losses. But Gideon remains a man who was called by the Lord. By the way, who's missing in these 40 years? The land was undisturbed for 40 years in the days of Gideon, but there's someone that we don't hear a word from, we don't see anything about, we, we don't notice in these 40 years. It's the angel of the Lord. He's not showing up anymore. Listen, whether we're fighting or our land or our homes are at rest, we need Jesus. And we don't just need Jesus for the fight. In fact, I think we need Jesus more when we are at rest than when we are at war. 
And that's not to say we don't need Jesus when we're at war. But when we're at war, we're in the thick of the fight. When it's going down, that's when I'm saying, oh, Lord, I need you. When everything is smooth sailing and restful and peaceful and shalom is all about my house, that's when I need Jesus. In those days of peace, I need to be aware of him who said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I need Jesus in the rest just as much as I need him in the fight. Well, Gideon goes from poverty, prosperity, to perversion, both morally and spiritually. And yes, he rejected their, their request that he become their king, and yet he lived like a king, at least like a king of the nations. In terms of wealth, in terms of wives, many wives, and note this, he even named his son, back there in verse 31, he named him Avimelech. And we say Abimelech. But you would pronounce it in Hebrew, Avimelech, which means my father is king. <laughs> Gideon, I won't be your king, but he names his son, my father is king. I won't be your king, wink, wink. Let's <laughs> keep it on the down low. I'll be your king, but I'm not your king. Chapter nine, verse one. And Avimelech, the son of Yerubiel, went to Shechem, his mother's relatives, and spoke to them and to the whole clan of the household of his mother's father, saying, speak now in the hearing of all the leaders of Shechem. These, by the way, are non-Israelites here in Shechem. Which is better for you, that 70 men, all the sons of Yerubal, rule over you, or that one man rule over you? And also remember, I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives, remember his mother's the concubine of Gideon. His mother's relatives spoke in all these words on his behalf and in the hearing of all the leaders of Shechem and they were inclined to follow Avimelech for they said, he's our relative. They gave him 70 pieces of silver from the house of baal -berit, with which Avimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows and they followed him, Avimelech, or as my, my brother Doug mentioned the other day, and I love this, I'm gonna use this the rest of the night, Abysmalek. Because he is. The rest of this chapter, it's like, this guy is a train wreck, Abysmalek. He's no guardian of Israel. Now he's named here, another will be named in this chapter, Yoash, these two guys are not guardians of Israel. They, they rise up during this time, there's a three year period where Abismelech, Avimelech is, is trying to run the show and trying to be in charge, but he is no guardian in terms of being called by the Lord, he's just a guardian of his own self-interest. This is like a royal house divided, which would be you know, a, a sad docudrama on Netflix if it occurred back in the day. But Avimelech, and speaking of names, you might note this also throughout chapter nine, you will never see the name Gideon again. You will see Yerubal, contender with Baal. You'll see that name used for him. You will not see Gideon. You also will not one time in chapter nine see the name Yahweh. Well, Rick, it says God. Yeah, Elohim. So you're gonna get the more generic word for God, but you're not gonna hear his name in this chapter, there's somewhat of an absence here. So continuing on, verse five. And then he went to his father's house at Ophrah, this is Avimelech, Abismelech, and he killed his brothers, the sons of Yerubael, 70 men on one stone. 
But Yotam, I said Yoash before, it's Yotam, the youngest son of Yerubbaal was left for he hid himself. He runs away. Verse six, all the men of Shechem and of Bet Milo assembled together and they went and made Avimelech king by the oak of the pillar which is in Shechem. Now when they told Yotam, he went and stood on the top of Mount Gerizim and lifted up his voice and he called out. Now hang on a second. Shechem today is the most dangerous place perhaps in all of the region of Israel. It is certainly the most dangerous place for Israelis to go. They're not allowed to go into Shechem because it is a Palestinian hotbed of terrorism. Every now and then you'll hear things like, oh, the tomb of, of Joseph has been destroyed again. That's in Shechem. That's where it is. And it is right at the base of Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. Remember the two mounts? Mount Gerizim was the mount of blessing and Mount Ebal was the mount of curses. And Joshua and the leaders would stand in the middle and read out the blessings and the people on Mount Gerizim would shout amen and then they'd read the curses and the people on Mount Ebal would shout amen accepting the blessings and curses of the covenant. Well, that's where we are right now. Calling down to Shechem, now Yotam, the son who escaped, is up on Mount Gerizim. And he's calling out from what should be the Mount of Blessing, but he's gonna call down a curse. And it's the first parable in the Bible. Judges chapter nine, verse eight. Thus he said to them, end of verse seven, listen to me, O men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. Once the trees went forth to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, shall I leave my fatness with which God and men are honored and go to wave over the trees? And then the trees said to the fig tree, you come reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go wave over the trees? And then the trees said to the vine, you come reign over us. But the vine said to them, shall I leave my new wine which cheers God and men and go wave over the trees? Finally, all the trees said to the bramble, you come reign over us. The bramble said to the trees, if in truth you are anointing me as king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. Okay, a bramble is a tumbleweed. Anybody ever taken refuge in the shade of a tumbleweed? Come take refuge in my shade. But if not, may fire come out from the bramble and consume the cedars of Lebanon. Wow. This is an interesting parable. Now he's talking about the olive tree and he's talking about the fig tree and he's talking about the vine and these are all emblematic of Israel. And he's calling down to them down there in Shechem and these are symbols of the nation. Even to this day, the olive tree, the fig tree, and the vine are symbols of Israel, nationalistic symbols for Israelis today, those three uh, types of plant. In fact, Jesus said in Luke 21, 29, behold the fig tree and all the trees as soon as they put forth leaves, you see it and you know for yourself, summer is now near. So also when you see these things happening, recognize the kingdom of God is near. And it's one verse among many which makes, leads me to believe that the establishment of the Jewish state, that fig tree, indicates the summer is near and that Jesus is coming very quickly. Now in this fable, however, the olive tree, the fig tree, and the vine are all emblematic of uh, Gideon 
and his sons. The olive tree would probably be Gideon. The fig tree and the vine would represent his sons. They had an ephod. They lived like kings. They had a lot of losses, but there were some wins. At least they weren't owning rule. They weren't owning kingship, and they were smart enough to reject that. By the way, side note, if God hasn't exalted you, royalty is always a downgrade. If God's not the one promoting you, then even a promotion may be a demotion. You wanna make sure the Lord's hand is in it. Humble yourselves, the book of James tells us, chapter four, verse 10, in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. First Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. He always knows when it's the right time to lift you up. Until then, humble yourself. Well, so the bramble here, the tumbleweed is Abysmalek in the parable. And it's so amazing, the way he tells the parable, it's, it's very telling of the nature of people because we have this weird way of accepting brambles for leaders. <laughs> you notice this. Cheryl said the other day, isn't there anyone in America that would make a good president? <laughs> when you start looking at the choices we have, isn't there anyone else? And it's so strange how we do that. Sticky, lying politicians. And I, I said this on Sunday, not all of them are. Probably most of them are, but I don't know, you know. But historically, it's gonna culminate with a final thorny bramble. Abysmalek is just a picture and type of Antichrist. Jesus said, I have come in my Father's name, John 5, 43, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. And he's talking about Antichrist. The world's gonna receive this bramble rather than the olive tree or the fig tree or the vine. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, Paul said he's the man of lawlessness. He'll be revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. That's what Antichrist does. That's what the Antichrist spirit does is seek to exalt itself, which is one of the reasons why Jesus says to you and to me, humble yourselves. Don't be like the enemy. He exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so he takes his seat in the symbol of God, displaying himself as being God. Well, this parable ends with another prophecy, a prophecy way back then of this young man, Yotam. He says, if not, may fire come out from the bramble and consume the cedars of Lebanon. Now, therefore, if you have dealt in truth and integrity in making Abimelech king, or Avimelech, and if you have dealt well with Yerubel in his house and have dealt with him as he deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian, but you have risen against my father's house today and have killed his son, 70 men on one stone, and have made Avimelech the son of his maidservant king over the men of Shechem because he's your relative. If you have dealt in truth and integrity with Yerubel and his house this day, rejoice in Abimelech, and let him also rejoice in you. Great, go have a party, enjoy some ice cream cake. I mean, if you guys have earned that, and this is a good thing, fine. But if not, verse 20, let fire come out from Avimelech and consume the men of Shechem and Bet Milo, and let fire come out from the men of Shechem and from Bet Milo and consume Avimelech. And then Yotam escaped and fled and went to beer. He didn't go get a beer, he went to a place called beer. 
and remained there because Abimelech, of Abimelech, his brother. So he runs off. And Abimelech, verse 22, ruled over Israel. This is interesting to me. Three years. He's a short-lived firebrand who will incinerate his own, as you will see. But what's interesting here is the rule of Abimelech is very close in similarity to the rule of Antichrist, who will rule for three and a half years, first three and a half years of the tribulation before it all starts to fall apart. But watch this. Continuing on, verse 23. Then God sent an evil spirit between Avimelech and the men of Shechem, and the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Avimelech, so that the violence done to the 70 sons of Yerubbaal might come, and their blood might be laid on Avimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. God sent an evil spirit. Now, if I just threw that out there without our Bibles open, some of you would be incensed. But this is scripture. What does this mean? How do we deal with this? Note this first of all, and I've mentioned this prior to this study. Evil spirit here is ruah, ruach, or, or ra'ah, ruach. Ra'ah means troubling, mischievous. You could translate this a mischievous spirit. You could say it's a spirit of trouble. You can also translate this, and I'm just throwing this out here for you, a wind of trouble. So there are some who say it's not a spirit per se, it's just that God causes, allows this trouble to be stirred up. What do you think, Rick? Well, I think it was a spirit. Because we've already seen, or we will see, that is in Isaiah 19, 14, that he's gonna send, or that he sent a perverse spirit on Egypt. So the prophet Isaiah says God sent a perverse spirit on Egypt. In 1 Samuel 16, 14, we'll see that God sends a troubling spirit, same phrase here, ra'ah ruach, to Saul. The Lord sent a lying spirit to Ahab, 1 Kings 22, 23, and Isaiah tells us, chapter 45, verse 7, he's the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. God says, I am the Lord who does all these. I cause calamity. You know what the point is here, without spending scads of time on it tonight, is nothing can happen without his permission. And that's, that's great news. Because what that means is while the enemy is at work or thinks he is at work, Psalm 33, 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Listen, we know God's purposes are not evil. We know that that is not the goal. We know Romans 8, 28, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Paul goes on in Romans 8, 31 and says, what shall we say to these things? If God's for us, who's against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And I'll go so far as to say, I believe that God can actually exploit and has exploited the enemy to accomplish his perfect work in your life and in mine. He's certainly taunting Satan with Job at the beginning of Job. Have you considered my servant Job? 
You might say, Rick, I don't understand that. Of course not. You're not God. By the way, we're all relieved about that. You're not God. I'm not God. This is something that we can go around and around and around about trying to understand God sending an evil spirit. And at the end of the day, we're just going to have to accept that God sent an evil spirit. And we have to know, Psalm 19, verse 9, that the judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous all together. So if God does it, it's right. Why? Because God is righteous. He's not just a good God. He's not just a righteous God. He is righteous. God is righteousness. He can't do that which is wrong. So there is right even in what he does here. Verse 25. So that the violence done, or sorry, the men of Shechem sent men in ambush against him on the tops of the mountains. And they robbed all who might pass by them along the road, and it was told to Avimelech. So now Shechem's turning against Avimelech. Verse 26. Now, Gaal, and I'm gonna call him Gael because Gaal is hard to say. The son of Evid came with his relatives and crossed over into Shechem, and the men of Shechem put their trust in him. And they went out into the field and gathered the grapes of their vineyards and trod them and held a festival and they went into the house of their God and ate and drank and cursed Avimelech. Then Gael, son of Evid, said, who's Avimelech? And who is Shechem? They're drunk, okay? Then we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubael? And is Zebul not his lieutenant? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But why should we serve him. By the way, Hamor, verse 28, is the founder of Shechem, going all the way back to Genesis 34. So he's saying, Let, let's, let's serve our own. Why should we serve this Avimelech? And in this drunk, drunkenness, he's, he's just throwing out this stuff. Would therefore that this people were under my authority, then I would remove Avimelech. And he said to Avimelech, increase your army and come out. Now, when it says he said this to Avimelech, I don't think Avimelech was there. I think he's just speaking against him, saying this as if he was there, you know, again, in his drunkenness. When Zebul, the ruler of the city, who is a puppet governor, heard the words of Gael, the son of Evid, his anger burned. He sent messengers to Avimelech deceitfully, saying, behold, Gael, the son of Evid, and his relatives have come to Shechem, and behold, they're stirring up the city against you. Therefore, now arise by night, you and the people who are with you and lie in wait in the field. In the morning, as soon as the sun is up, you shall rise early and rush upon the city. And behold, when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you shall do to them whatever you can or literally do as your hand can do. So this puppet governor in Shechem sends word to Avimelech. They're really talking against you. And this guy, Gaal, man, this guy's got some gall to say what he's saying against you. So since, get ready to take him out. Verse 34, so Avimelech and all the people who were with him arose by night. They lay in wait against Shechem in four companies. Now Gaal, the son of Evid, went out and stood in the entrance of the city gate and Avimelech and the people who were with him arose from the ambush. When Gaal saw the people, he said to Zebul, look, people are coming down from the tops of the mountains. But Zebul, again, the governor, says, ah, you're seeing, seeing the shadow of the mountains as if they were men. It's early morning, it's foggy. It's, no, no, those aren't men. That's, that's just the mountain shadow in the morning. What's Zebul doing? Buying time. He's trying to buy time for Avimelech and his men to get further down the mountain. 
Gaal, verse 37, again said, Behold, the people are coming down from the highest part of the land, and the com one company comes by the way of the diviner's oak. And then Zebul said to him, Where's your boasting now with which you said, Who is Avimelech that we should serve him? Is this not the people whom you despise? Go out now and fight with them. So Gaal went out before the leaders of Shechem and fought with Avimelech. Avimelech chased him and he fled before him and many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And then Avimelech remained at Arumah, but Zebul drove out Gaal and, and, and his relatives so that they could not remain in Shechem. Now it came about on the next day. It's all happening very quickly here that the people went out into the field and it was told to Avimelech. So he took his people and divided them into three companies. I wonder where he got that idea. His dad is Yerubal, Gideon. Divided them into three companies. He lay in wait in the field and when he looked and saw the people coming out from the city, he arose against them and slew them. Then Abimelech, this bramble king, this bramble king and the company who was with him dashed forward and stood in the entrance of the city gate. The other two companies then dashed against all who were in the field and slew them. This is civil war. That's what's happening here. The people that were supposed to be on Avimelech's side are against him and this Gaal, by the way, I didn't tell you this, Gaal's name means loathing. So the civil war between the bramble king and loathing. <laughs> they're fighting each other. They're fighting around the city of Shechem. It is a complete catastrophe. As I said to you, I'm reading through this going, this is just messed up. I don't know what else to say about this section. It's, it's messed up. Verse 45, Avimelech fought against the city all that day and captured the city and killed the people who were in it. And he raised the city, that is he flattened it and sowed it with salt and we have archaeological proof that this happened in the 12th century BC, which is exactly when this is told. Archaeological proof that the city was wiped out and that the land all about Shechem was salted. It burns the ground, it burns the land so that you can't grow anything. And it stayed that way until it was rebuilt, Shechem, in the reign of Jeroboam II. So for a long time, it would stay just flattened. But for all of this, do you realize what Avimelech, Abismelech is doing here? He's destroying his own city. This is his hometown. This would be like me going up against Mission Viejo, California. I'm gonna wipe them out, take them down. Every last one of them, I'm gonna slam. It's your hometown, man. This is where you came from. These are your people. This is your family. What a vile king. Who would do such a thing? Antichrist will. So again, we have this picture in type of Antichrist. When all the leaders of the Tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the inner chamber of the temple of El Barit, God of the Covenant. El Barit. But this temple is not a temple of Yahweh. It is the temple to Baal Barit, the pagan god. And again, it's this pagan mixture it was told Avimelech that all the leaders of the Tower of Shechem were gathered together, so Avimelech went up to Mount Zalman, which means Black Mountain. 
he and all the people who were with him, and Avimelech took an ax in his hand and cut down a branch from the tree, lifted it and laid it on his shoulder. He said to the people who were with him, do as you have seen me do, hurry and do likewise. All the people cut down each one his branch and followed Avimelech and put them on the inner chamber and set the inner chamber on fire over those inside so that all the men of the tower of Shechem died, about a thousand men and women. He burned them alive with branches from a tree. That's the kind of behavior you could expect of an antichrist spirit. What you would expect of Jesus Christ is not to cut down a tree, but to be hung on a tree, the tree of Calvary, and to sacrifice himself for us. Then, verse 50, keep going. Avimelech went to Tibet's, and he camped against Tibet's and captured it. But there was a strong tower in the center of the city and all the men and women with all the leaders of the city fled there and shut themselves in. I don't know why people keep doing these things. But they shut themselves in and they went up on the roof of the tower. So Avimelech came to the tower and fought against it and approached the entrance of the tower to burn it with fire. So here comes this bramble ready to burn more people. But a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Avimelech's head, crushing his skull. This is the first attempt at monarchy in Israel, and it was a cranial catastrophe. <laughs> I mean, it all went to this guy's head. Seriously, Avimelech began his rule over Israel for these three or so years by killing the 70 sons of Yerubbaal, Gideon, do you remember where he did it? On one stone. He began his rule with one stone and now the rule of Abimelech is crushed by a single stone. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. But there's a greater warning, I think, that follows this. Turning your Bibles over to Matthew 21. Matthew 21, I wanna show you one more thing and we're gonna be done tonight. Matthew chapter 21, verse 42. Jesus has just given a parable. He, it's so remarkable how Jesus dealt with the religious leaders. By the way, if you feel like Jesus was just angry with them all the time and arguing with them all the time, it's because he loved them so much, as with anyone. And while a bruised reed he will not break and a self-righteous you know, arrogant, boastful leader, he'll break. So he's, he's having this conflict, this challenge with them. And finally, they said, or he said to them, Matthew 21, 42, did you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected became the chief corner. This came about from the Lord. It's marvelous in our eyes. That's Psalm 118, verse 22. And therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And then he said this, this interesting phrase, and he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Whoever falls on this stone, you know what the cross of Jesus is? It's a stumbling block to Israel. When Jesus says, whoever falls on this stone, I believe he's talking specifically about Israel. You're gonna be broken to pieces, and Israel was. 
following on the stone of Christ, following on the, following on the stumbling block of the cross, Israel was broken and shattered and is only now being pieced back together by the gracious loving hands of God. But when he says, on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust, we know exactly who that is too. It's the nations of the world that reject the Christ. How do you know? Because it's the prophecy of Daniel. And I won't read it tonight, but Daniel chapter through, uh, 2, verses 31 through 45, gives the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. And specifically in verse 35, as Daniel is interpreting the dream, he talks about the stone not made by human hands coming out of nowhere and smashing a glorious statue until it is like chaff on the wind, or you could say scattered like dust. Jesus makes such a powerful and potent statement. That for all the wins and, and the losses of life, there is only one win that matters and it comes only when we put our trust in the cornerstone in Jesus Christ. The only stone that matters. All other stones, you'll trip on. You'll be hurt by. They won't amount to anything. But the stone, the cornerstone, Israel was broken by it, stumbling over it. The nations will be crushed by it. But you who believe and trust in Jesus, this becomes stability in our times, the firm foundation. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. You stand on the truth of Jesus. The end of the chapter, Judges chapter nine, verse 54 Avimelech called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, draw your sword and kill me so that it will not be said of me a woman slew him. So the young man pierced him through and he died. Had it been moments longer, he would have just died by the, it's amazing. Yael, Yale, and, and this woman here in the tower in the book of Judges took out two pretty nasty dudes. Don't let it be said that a woman killed me. Well, he died. Verse 55, when the men of Israel saw that Avimelech was dead, each departed to his home. Listen to how that's written. Each departed to his home. You almost get a sense of a confused, embarrassed, shuffling, maybe relieved, walk home. Huh? Boy, that was three and a half years. We'll never get back. <laughs> Verse 56, thus God, thus God repaid the wickedness of Avimelech, which he had done to his father in killing his 70 brothers. Also God returned all the wickedness of the men of Shechem on their heads. And the curse of Yotam, the son of Yerubbaal, came upon them. Was Avimelech a judge in Israel? No, no, he was a train wreck. Was Yotam a judge? No, he was a prophet. At least prophesied one thing. There was no judge really at this time. We're gonna see another judge rise up in chapter 10, not tonight. But in those days, Judges 21, 25, I remind you, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Will we do what is right in our own eyes or will we do what is right by the Lord? Will we stand on the cornerstone? If we do what's right in our own eyes, it will crush us. There's only one king, one stone that matters, and that is, of course, Jesus, the resurrected cornerstone. 